If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn to Hosea chapter 2 this evening. Hosea 2, 1 through 15. If you were not here with us, I'll just recap briefly what we saw last Lord's Day evening. Uh, We don't know much about Hosea. We just know that the Lord called him to be a prophet over about a 70-year span. Hosea belonged to the northern kingdom. At this point, the kingdom is divided, the ten tribes to the northern kingdom, Judah, from which the kings and the kingdom of God would come in the south. And God is predicting and prophesying judgment on the northern kingdom for their rebellion. That's going to happen in just a matter of time when God is going to bring the Assyrians in and the northern kingdoms. Many of those people are going to be carried off and are going to be judged for their idolatry their wickedness, and as the allusion and the illustration are set out in Hosea, because of their spiritual adultery. The Lord did something very unique with Hosea. He raised up a prophet who was going to enact in a sort of parabolic way in his life the relationship between the Lord himself and his unfaithful, adulterous people. And so God tells Hosea to take for himself a a wife of whoredom and to raise up children of whoredom. And he does that with Gomer. And the Lord gives them three children. One of those children's names was Jezreel because God was predicting that he would judge Israel for what happened back in 2 Kings with the bloodshed there in Jezreel, post the bloodshed of Jezebel on the kings of Israel and the king of Judah, and some of his descendants. And then the Lord raises up two other children, one who goes by the name No Mercy, and one who goes by the name Not My People, which is really covenant reversal. God is promising that he's going to reverse, as it were, those promises that you will be my people and I will be your God. And is saying now to Old Covenant Israel, you will not be my people. And I will not be your God, and I will not show you mercy. And so we're looking at Hosea chapter 2 tonight, beginning in verse 1. And now the Lord says to the prophet, Say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. I am not her husband that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Upon her children also, I will have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the whore She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Therefore I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. She did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her her silver and gold, 
which they used for Baal. Therefore I will take back my grain in its time, and my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and no one shall rescue her out of my hand. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her sabbaths, all her appointed feast. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages with which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers and forgot me, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of God endures forever. Well, of all the things that people could tell you you need to know in life, of the many things that people have probably told you over the years, whether it was your parents or whether it was mentors or whether it was friends or people that you looked up to, I wonder if people have told you there are really only two things that you need to know in life. There's only two things you need to know. And that is the nature of sin and the nature of the love of God. What sin is in truth and what God's love is in action. Now I say that because the message of Hosea is really setting those two things out side by side as God is dealing with his people. Um, there are figures and metaphors in this book, these prophetic utterances under poetic imagery. And yet, in, in the very essence of the message of Hosea, there is the message about the nature of sin, and there is the message about the love of God in action in relationship to the nature of that sin. Um, as we saw last week, the Lord has already teed up for his people the essence of the nature of their sin. It is, in its essence, spiritual adultery. You may remember when Jesus is, uh, when he is in conflict with the scribes and the chief priests and the Pharisees in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23, he calls them adulterers and adulteresses. He's not speaking about physical adultery. He's speaking about what they had become spiritually before him. They had been unfaithful to him. They had turned away from him. They had taken to themselves the things he had given them, and they had misused them sinfully, and had misused them and attributed them to themselves and to other things that were not God. And that was really the story, the long, sad story of old covenant Israel. This is the church of God. These are the people of God. These are the only people of all the people on the face of the earth that God had set apart for himself. No different than you and no different than me in the church today. 
And yet constantly, generation after generation after generation had been unfaithful and had committed spiritual adultery by taking the good gifts of God, as we saw last week, and attributing them to things that were not gods and running after things that were not gods. Now, in the case of Israel, we get clues to what the peculiar uh, sin nature was, the idolatry. They were worshiping the Baals. Remember, we said that Ahab marrying Jezebel, who was the daughter of the prophet, the priest of Baal, had brought Baal worship into Israel in full force. They had not only said it was okay, they had encouraged the people of God to go after foreign gods. And especially um, this false god, Baal, who was believed to be the god of fertility, the god that gave you bounty, the god that caused grain and wine to grow, the god that gave you your wool and your flax and all of those other things that came from the ground. And so as the Lord is dealing with the apostate nation, and he has already set up this parabolic marriage between Hosea and Gomer, and then the children that they would have, the Lord now turns to tell the people really three things. Uh, first, here in this section, he talks about the atrocious nature of sin. Secondly, the blessed discipline of God's love. And thirdly, the alluring nature of God's love, the atrocious nature of sin, the blessed discipline of God, and the alluring love of God. We'll notice there in verse 2 that the Lord now explains to Hosea why it is that he has told her to take a wife of harlotry. And, and now he turns from Hosea and Gomer and their children and what's going on in that historical parabolic context. And he says in verse 2, plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband. Now, we know from previous sections of the Old Testament that the primary relationship that God sustained to the covenant people was that of a husband to his bride. Even in the Ten Commandments, when the Lord is, in a sense, wedding Israel to himself, he's redeemed them, he's brought them out, he's set them free. He's delivered them from their bondage and their captivity. He's brought them to the mountain. He's come down and met with them. He's given them his marriage covenant, as it were, in the Mosaic Covenant. And there in the Ten Commandments, you'll remember that the Lord says to them that they are not to have other gods before him. That's as if a husband were to say to his wife, you're not to have another man beyond me because the marriage covenant is sacred. And then you'll remember in that commandment where the Lord commands his people not to take his name in vain. He says, for the Lord your God is a jealous God the way it's right for a husband to be jealous of the love of his wife. You know, there are, in our days, so many perversions of what marriage is, not just in the, the deviant sexual immorality in the LGBTQ community, but in polyamorous relationships, in open relationships, in swinger relationships. I have friends that have gone those routes and have departed from their marriages, and have gone that route. And there is something horribly wrong when a husband 
or a wife does not feel jealousy toward their spouse. In fact, the Proverbs say that it's right for a husband to be jealous of his wife and that he will not bear the sword in vain. That there is a, a jealousy that is meant to protect and guard and keep a spouse close. And you remember how the Lord Jesus says this, what God has joined together, let no man put asunder. But here, because of Israel's sin, the Lord is saying now to the Israelites, plead with your mother. And there I think he's speaking of the religious leaders who are representing the nation, that she is not my wife and I am not her husband. He is essentially saying, it is as if I am divorcing you. Um, this is the most severe thing that the Lord has said to Israel. You are as if you are no longer my wife, and it is as if I am no longer your husband. And then the Lord brings an indictment against Israel because of the atrocity of their sin. Now, there are really two things that God sets out, and then there are multiple things within that. But the, the two really big things that the Lord sets out when speaking about Israel's sin is that she has forgotten the previous blessings. Notice verse 3 and 4. He says, um, he says I'm sorry, um, he mentions that she has forgotten from where she got her, her wine and her grain. And then there is the misunderstanding of her present blessings. Those are sort of the two things. He'll remind Israel of what he did for her, and he'll remind Israel of what he continues to do for her. And yet Israel has not taken an inventory of all the ways that the Lord has blessed her as her husband. Now, that is the great problem with our sin. Um, whenever we grumble and complain, we have stopped recognizing all that the Lord has done for us and all that the Lord continues to do for us. Every time we say that we think we deserve better or we feel that we deserve better, we have forgotten all the kindness of the Lord to us in the past and all the present blessings that he continues to load us with. And really at ground zero of the nature of sin is unthankfulness and selfishness. It is thinking we deserve better, and it is not recognizing the one from whom everything comes. You know, there is a really interesting way in which the Lord warns Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy about this. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, he says, when you come into the land that you did not labor for, and you live in houses that you did not build, and you eat food that you did not work for, be careful not to forget the Lord your God. So the Lord brought them into a land that wasn't theirs. He gave it to them. He gave them houses that weren't theirs. He gave them food that wasn't theirs. They had not worked for that. They had done nothing to deserve that. And then in Deuteronomy 8, the Lord takes it a step further, and he says, be careful when you come into the land that I bring you, and you build houses and live in them, and you work the ground and you yield food from it, that you do not forget the Lord your God. You see, there are the, the two things. Don't forget what I did for you in that state of undeservedness by grace, and don't forget that everything still comes from me. Now, when the Lord is 
addressing Israel here. Notice that he does so in verse 2 by pleading with her. Now, this is, this is an appeal of love. By the way, if God wasn't full of love toward Israel, he would not tell her about the nature of her sin. We heard this morning that it's actually unloving when we don't rejoice in the truth. It's not loving for us to condone sin. And yet, the Lord is pleading and the Lord is warning. He's pleading and he's warning. Now, when we look at verses 2 through 5, we're going to see that the Lord sets out four different aspects of the atrociousness of Israel's sin. It's true of our sin as well. First, we see that sin brings spiritual separation. Israel's sin brought spiritual separation from the Lord as her husband. Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife, and I am not her husband. Israel's sin had separated her, as Isaiah says. Our sin separates us from our God. You know, I know in my Christian experience, when there's sin in my life that I've not dealt with or that goes unconfessed, I am not having sweet times of communion with God. That when we are living in sin, in any capacity, and we are not going back to the Lord in brokenness and contrition, crying out for mercy, we are not having sweet times of studying God's word and prayer. Our sin separates us from God. It alienates us from God. Secondly, in verse 3, and probably most pronounced in this section, is that sin brings spiritual shame. Now listen, about seven, eight years ago, it became very popular for Christian authors to write books about how terrible shame was. You've got to get rid of shame. If you have any shame in your life, it's terrible. In fact, shame should lead us to a place to see the nature of our sin so that we will see our need for a Savior. If you try to get rid of shame without the cross, you're taking the batteries out of the smoke detector so that you're not aware of the heinousness of your sin. Notice the Lord says, notice this. He says, I'm plead, I tell, tell, plead with your mother that she put away her whoring from her face or adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked. That's the idea of shame, the nakedness. Right? Our first parents were naked and they were unashamed. But when sin came into the world, they were ashamed and they sought to cover themselves. Here the Lord says, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day that she was born. Notice this. He mentions the shame um, over in uh, verse 9 again. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time, my wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax which were to cover her nakedness. You see, the Lord's saying, Israel running after foreign gods is shameful. Sin is shameful. Look, this is not fundamentalism. This is biblical truth, and it is a spiritual reality. Shame accompanies the atrocity of sin. There is a rightness in that sense that we acknowledge shame. Rick Phillips puts it this way, sin brings us into disgrace. For Israel, this warning probably referred to the humiliation the people were going to receive at the hands of the Assyrian invaders so that their weakness was publicly revealed. 
But the Lord is trying to help them understand that what they are engaged in is disgraceful. You know, when we think about our sin, we all have a tendency to want to downplay our sin and magnify the sin of others out there. That's our tendency. This is why Jesus told that account. And you see the speck in your brother's eye. You know, don't point it out until you take the log out of your eye. It doesn't mean you have more sin than your brother. It means your sin should look like a big log in your eye and your brother's sin should look like a little speck from where you stand. But what we like to do is magnify the sin of others and downplay the shamefulness of our sin. And the Lord is saying here to Israel, listen, acknowledge what you are. He's saying through Hosea, tell her that her nakedness is going to be exposed. Now, there is a third thing that sin, sin brings. It brings spiritual barrenness. It brings spiritual barrenness. Notice there in the second part of verse 3, lest I make her like a wilderness and make her like a parched land and kill her with thirst. Now, if you were an Israelite, that should have had enormous symbolic significance to you. Because Israel, that first generation, had spent 40 years trekking through the dry, barren desert, complaining about thirst, begging God to give them something to drink. And here the Lord is saying to Israel that its sin produces spiritual barrenness. Um, you know, the great deceit of the evil one is that the sinful things we want are going to make us uh, realize our full potential or they're going to satisfy us. When what Jeremiah the prophet says is that our sin, the Lord says, you've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and you've hewned out for yourself cisterns, jars, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So every time we try to satisfy ourselves with sinful things, it's like taking a broken clay pot with sand in it and saying, satisfy me. And God says, I'm going to leave them like a barren wilderness. I'm going to leave them like a parched land. I'm going to leave them thirsty. Now, there is a fourth thing. There's spiritual separation. There's spiritual shame. There's spiritual barrenness. And there are spiritual consequences. Notice verse 4. It's not just the religious leaders who are doing these things. It's not just true of them. It has consequences on the children of Israel. Notice this. Upon her children I will have no mercy, because they are children of whoredom. For their mother has played the horse. She who conceived them has acted sinfully. You know, we need to be reminded that sin is never an isolated thing. Um, you think of the sin of Achan. There's going to be an allusion to that at the end of this chapter in the Valley of Achor. When Israel had gone and defeated Ai, and God said not to touch any of the accursed things, and Achan had stolen some of the gold for himself, and he had hidden it, and the Lord knew exactly how to expose him in that. And, and that sin had consequences on his wife and his children. Or you think of the sin of Miriam. When Miriam and Aaron were jealous of 
Moses and they they complained against Moses, though God had appointed Moses, and God struck Miriam with leprosy for her rebellion and her complaining against the one the Lord had appointed. And what happened? What happened? For seven days, two million people couldn't move through the wilderness. Seven days, one person sinned, and they were stuck in the heat of the wilderness because of Miriam's sin. You know, our sin always has consequences beyond ourselves. Um, I think when we tear down a brother or sister in a fellowship, and we do it in passive-aggressive ways, we've all done that. That has consequences that trickles out to others. Um, you know, when we fail to discipline our children, that has consequences, um, long-reaching consequences. When we fail to love our spouse tenderly, that has consequences. All sin has consequences beyond us. And the Lord is saying here, there is spiritual separation, there is spiritual shame, there is spiritual barrenness, there are spiritual consequences. Thomas McComsky says, just as children of harlots in that society suffered shame, ostracization, poverty, and disease, so all the people of Israel would pay the penalty of the na nation's descent into the dark abyss of spiritual fornication. There's a good reason why God is telling Israel this. He wants his people, he wants us, to acknowledge the true nature of sin. Because if we turn a blind eye to the true nature of sin, we will never turn from sin and to the Lord. Now, I mentioned at the outset that really the two things you need to know in life are the true nature of sin and the true nature of the love of God. Everything the Lord is doing is because of his love for Israel. He's not, he's not trying to shame Israel so that they'll just feel horrible and just leave them there in despondency. He is, he is working in them to draw them back to himself. And so as the Lord begins to explain what he's doing, secondly, he, he sets out the blessing of his discipline to them. The blessing of his discipline. By the way, the worst thing that the Lord can do is leave us to ourselves. When I was a kid, I hated when my dad disciplined me. I mean, I was like a wild stallion. I hated it. My heart bucked against it. And my dad would remind me, son, I discipline you because I love you. And he would say, the Lord disciplines me in lots of ways that are not maybe as evident and tangible as those that you are experiencing. But after I was converted, I understood the blessing of discipline. By the way, the, the doctrine of the loving discipline of God has got to be one of the most neglected doctrines in Christendom. The writer of Hebrews says that every father who loves his son disciplines him, and that if he doesn't, it's that we are illegitimate and not sons. Now, as he begins to explain his discipline there in verse 6, and then again in 9 through 13, he uses these different terms. He says, I will block, I will take away, I will expose, I will stop, I will ruin, I will punish. That's a whole lot of different things God's saying he's going to do. 
Um, Tim Chester says, God pursues his bride by withdrawing his blessings. God pursues his bride by withdrawing his blessings. Strange as it may seem, God sometimes blesses us by removing his blessing. Don't miss that. He's going to say to Israel, I'm going to take away all that I gave you. I'm going to take away what you think your lovers gave you. I'm going to take it all away from you. I'm going to expose your nakedness. I'm going to do all these things because I love you. Chester says, the Lord prevents us finding satisfaction in other lovers. He wants to bring us to our senses. Now, as I said, this is wildly unpopular, but it is so good for us spiritually. Because when the Lord does that, and we receive that from his loving hand, it guides us back into his loving arms. It brings us back to our senses. You know, there's almost a parallel in what is being written here in Hosea chapter 2 and the parable of the prodigal son. You know the account so well. The prodigal son goes to his father. He says, give me what is mine. Well, it's not his. It's all his father's. Give me what's mine. The father says, fine. Here, he gives it to him. He goes, he squanders it. He runs after other gods. He runs after other lovers. He goes to the far country. By the way, Jesus uses that language of far country because it denotes the pagan nations, the Gentiles. He goes away from God like Israel had gone. He goes out. He spends it all. He's left destitute. He's gladly willing to eat the pods that are fed to the pigs. He realizes there's no one who cares for him. He recognizes he's in the worst place and that he's put himself there. The Lord has removed all the blessing, and he says he came to his senses. I love that. That's the language of repentance. When we don't repent, we're out of our senses. When he came to his senses, he said, the servants in my father's house have everything that they need. I will rise, I will return, and I will go back to my father's house. And that's why the Lord is telling Israel what he's going to do in disciplining them. And that is what the Lord's telling us whenever he disciplines us. You know, there are really two ways that we can respond to the Lord's discipline. I have done both. And I imagine if you're a true believer, you've done both. One is when he sends discipline and hardship, we can complain and we can say with Cain, the judgment is too great for me. I can't bear it. Or we can say, I deserve so much worse. I'm going to arise and I'm going to go back to my father. And those are the two ways of responding to God's discipline. I love the way the writer of Hebrews there in Hebrews 12, as he gives us that precious doctrine of God's loving discipline, he says that everyone who is trained by it bears the peaceable fruits of righteousness. Now, thankfully, the Lord doesn't discipline us oftentimes as extremely as we deserve to be disciplined. Here he meets Israel's sin with a consequence and a discipline that is commensurate with it. She had attributed her grain and her wine, her gold and her silver to a false god. And so the Lord says, I'll take away your grain and your wine and your gold and your silver. You see, the Lord generally meets our sin with disciplines that are commensurate to our sin. And yet all of this, thirdly, is really the Lord is teeing up, again, 
He is teeing up his grand purpose. What is the grand purpose of Yahweh? What is the covenant Lord doing? What is the triune God doing with his people? Well, notice, having set out all those disciplines, having set out the nature of Israel's sin, notice verse 14. I love this. There's, there's not even a verse between, I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, verse 13, and verse 14, therefore I will allure her. Isn't that interesting? I will punish her, verse 13. I will allure her, verse 14. You see, all of the things the Lord has done in exposing the nature of Israel's sin, the nature of our sin, the nature of the discipline that he's going to send in the chastisement are meant to lead to this point where the Lord says, I am going to allure her to myself. Um, o. Palmer Robertson notes that when you look at the language in verses 14 and 15, this is very interesting. Look, the Lord says, therefore, I will allure her. And then notice, he says, I'll bring her into the wilderness. What's he doing there? He's reminding Israel of what he had done so long before when he redeemed her and brought her to himself. He then says, I'll give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. That was when Israel came into the conquest and defeated Ai. It's the time when Achan stole those, those accursed things. But the Lord's saying, I'm going to do for what I did at the beginning. I'm going to bring you into the wilderness. I'm going to give you a conquest again. And then notice, he says, and there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. Now, don't miss this. What is the Lord doing? Whenever God's people forget who he is and all that he's done for us, forget the past blessings, they fail to see the present blessings, and he sets in order the nature of our sin, and he sets before us the dire consequences and the discipline he's going to bring because of it, what he always does is says, now remember what I did for you at the beginning. Um, you see this in Jesus's message to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where he says, you know, you've forgotten your first love. And he says, remember the first works. Repent and return. That's what the Lord's saying to Israel. I'm going to remind you again, but, but the Lord's going to do it in a different way. It's not going to be a recapitulation of the exodus physically for Israel. It's going to be a spiritual exodus in Christ. That's what all of this is moving to. How do we know? Well, if you go over to Hosea 11.1, God says, out of Egypt, I brought my son. Out of Egypt, I brought my son, Israel. But in Matthew chapter 2, Matthew applies that to Jesus. When Joseph and Mary take Jesus down into Egypt and out of Egypt, Matthew quotes Hosea 11, 1 and says, out of Egypt I brought my son. And then at the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is there and Moses and Elijah appear with him. And, and Luke tells us in Luke 9, 31, they spoke with him of his exodus that he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Paul tells us Christ is our Passover. You see, Jesus is the true Israel who was perfectly faithful, 
who never sinned, never turned aside to other gods, who did what Israel failed to do its entire history, who was then exiled in judgment for the sins of his people and was restored in his resurrection so that the Lord says, I am going to allure you with my son and with what he does. Um, listen to this. Robertson says, in the end, the Lord will return Israel to himself. He will return her to the land he has given her. Uh, and under David, this return will involve a new exodus, a new wilderness wandering in the desert, a new conquest of the land, a new experience of defeat at Ai will now take on a form of a door of hope. Now, this is good news for us because we are no different than Israel. By the way, I'm the only person that tells you this. Listen carefully. We are no different than Israel. Our hearts, as the hymn writer said, are prone to wander. All we like sheep have gone astray. We like to do wrong things. We like to go after other lovers that are not lovers like God is our lover. We like to attribute to our own strength or to other people or to governments or political institutions or theories or anything else our well-being. And the Lord reminds us time and time again, and he draws us back time and time again by reminding us of Christ. Now, I want to say this tonight, just two things here as we close. You know, there is something marvelous about this message. If, if you feel just terrible right now and you're like, I don't like this, it makes me feel bad. Let me say you've missed the point. One, it should make you feel bad. But two, in the midst of recognizing how awful our sin is, look at the greatness of the love of God, that he is constantly there. Listen, Spurgeon says that God should love us still, that he should follow us with warning and invitation, that his spirit should strive with us until he wins the day, that he should remain faithful to us is more amazing still. It's amazing that the Lord has not given up on us, that he has not left us to ourselves, that he has not left us to our sin and our wandering. That's amazing. By the way, nothing will motivate us to flee from our sin and go back to the Lord than that. This God loves us so much that he says, I will not let you go. I will lure you to myself. I will restore you. I will bring you back from where you've gone. And then secondly, I want us to see really how this works. You know, it's very interesting. Israel attributed to Baal the trees. And God says, I'm going to make it like a barren forest. Israel attributed to the Baals its... its um, fruitfulness. It's fruit trees. Listen to this. Donald Gray Barnhouse has this amazing meditation. You know, God gave Israel those trees. God gave Israel those fruitful trees. And Israel attributed that to a foreign demonic God, which is not a God. But listen to this. Barnhouse said, God will give man the trees of the forest and iron in the ground. Then he will give man the brain to make an axe of the iron to cut down a tree and fashion it to a cross. 
He will give man the ability to make a hammer and nails. The Lord will allow man to take hold of him and bring him to that cross. He will stretch out his hands upon it and allow man to nail him to that cross. And in so doing, will take the sins of man upon himself and make it possible for those who have despised and rejected him to come to him and know the joy of sins removed and forgiven. Isn't that amazing? The things that Israel were attributing to foreign gods, they would ultimately use in the crucifixion of God himself. And yet that is how God brings us back to himself. What a God we serve. Now, here's the good news as we close. If we recognize that our sin brings separation, shame, barrenness, and communal consequences, and if we recognize that God disciplines us in love and faithfulness, and we recognize that he does that because he wants to allure us back to himself in Christ, everything is good news. No matter what sin you've been engaged in, no matter what nature it is, it could be something as small as gossip, slander, bitterness, it could be pornography, it could be actual adultery, it could be extortion, it could be murder. You know, I just saw that Joel Beakey did a conference and he posted a picture of a young man who came up to him and said he had been in jail for some pretty heinous crimes he had committed. And that while in jail, he started reading Beakey's stuff, became converted as a member of a Reformed church and is in the process of becoming an elder. That's awesome. That's the kind of God we serve. That's, that's what God is alluring us away from and to. Now that means, I'm going to leave you with this, no matter where you are right now in your life, when we recognize these things, the same response that God wants from me is the same response he wants from you. And that is that we would return to him because of who he is, because of what he's done for us in Christ. What a God we serve. I want to read to you what Spurgeon said it again, but that God should love us still, that he should follow us with warning and invitation, that his spirit should strive with us and continue to strive until he wins the day. That's the message of Hosea 2. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Lord, we cover our faces in acknowledging the shame of our sin. We acknowledge, Lord, that we have gone after other lovers who are not lovers. We have attributed to others the things that you have given us. We have turned away from you. We have uh, lived, Lord, in so many ways and at so many times in rebellion against you. And our God, we thank you that you are a God who disciplines us in faithfulness and love, and that you are a God who allures us back to yourself in Christ. Our Father, would you make us to see the grace and the mercy and the love and the beauty and the glory of the heavenly bridegroom, the Lord Jesus, who took our sin on himself at the cross. Lord Jesus, would you send your spirit together with your warnings and your invitations to strive with us until you have won the day in returning us to you. We do pray that you would be at work in every man, woman, boy, and girl who are gathered here, and that you would make us a people who are faithful to you in reciprocal love because of the greatness of your love to us. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.